Hello and welcome back to This Is Our Design, Sound On Sight's Hannibal podcast dedicated to Brian Fuller's series on NBC for the moment, and based on the characters created by Thomas Harris. My co-host is Kate Kolzik, TV editor at soundonsight.org and writer at theavclub.com. I'm Sean Coletti, and our guest this week, also from the AV Club, where she has been reviewing Hannibal since its inception, is Molly Eichel, uh, who is making a return appearance. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So, a couple of big pieces of news. Uh, one of them is that the Supreme Court did something good and legalized gay marriage across the nation, which is important to real life. Uh, another piece of news, which is just important to this podcast, is Hannibal got canceled. Well, it didn't. And there have been a lot of really great articles about this. Um, Miles Wingdot specifically wrote up a piece over cultural learnings that I would encourage people to go check out. It's not that they canceled it. It's they dropped distribution of it in the U.S. And so if somebody else like steps in to, dis, uh, to distribute it in the U.S. and they're prominent enough that that keeps the international distributors to want to you know stay in business with the show, then it can certainly come back for a season four. So I'm choosing to go to the la 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 land of um, it's going to be fine. <laughs> That's where I'm at. Molly, where are you at? I mean, it's, it already has an Amazon, you know, it already has this exclusive deal with Amazon. If, you know, knowing that NBC was only paying about $200,000, like a little less than $200,000 an episode, which I think Entertainment Weekly reported um, when during, you know, around the time of the cancellation it it kind of makes sense it's um you know it's this niche show with this like very hardcore fan base and i think that you know i think a lot of streaming services look at these very hardcore fan bases and think um well if i can we can get them then they'll see our other offerings and whatnot um you know at the same time they may want to you know amazon may want to or you know it doesn't seem like it'd be a good home for now netflix where they're kind of trying to push their own original content despite picking up something like degrassi but um you know amazon amazon it seems like kind of a natural fit where they already have the they already have all the back the all the back episodes they have the first two seasons streaming and um so uh, yeah my fingers are crossed just because i want to see how this ends i mean brian fuller said there'd be five seasons you can't leave me at three and leave me hanging at three and not tell me how all this all ends i gotta see where this like this crazy vision comes i was like so invested in this crazy vision at this point that i like really need to know (laughs) i need to know where it ends i uh yeah i think that in this day and age um there are a lot of reasons to not get worried about it and there are the practical ones which you mentioned kate and so I guess I'll just add, like, I I just can't believe that something like this, which is so uniquely artistic on television, and considering that more creativity is moving towards television and away from film, that this would not see a future, the future that Brent Fuller designed. So hmm. there are, I, I don't think that fans should be that worried. If, you know, we get eight months from now and still no word, then maybe... Maybe start biting the nails, but for now, I think we're okay. Yeah. The other thing I'll throw in, and um, of course, this is not what any of us want to happen, or else we wouldn't be here recording a Hannibal podcast, but if if it doesn't get picked up, at least we got three really great seasons of t- TV. I'm saying three. Two seasons and four episodes of really great TV so far, um, and you know, Deadwood only got three seasons and it's one of the best shows ever made. Um, so at least we got three seasons. It's better than the one season of Wonderfalls and the two seasons of Pushing Daisies. Um, it, I'm really hoping we get more, but, you know, at least we're getting this unique 
um, Brian Fuller creation that's been untampered with by networks and outside influences. And um, there, there are worse things that could happen, I guess, than the show not coming back. Yeah, plus, you know, it, it takes us theoretically through Red Dragon, and if you want to just continue the story, you have some of the adaptations. Plus, the, the other thing I want to throw in before we actually go into the discussion of this episode is that nobody who is a fan of the series should be upset with NBC, because they did their part and kept it around much longer than any network probably needed to, and considering the standards and practices stuff, like, they definitely supported this series as far as they could and so kudos to them. But um, we'll go ahead and get started. Then this week we're going to be talking about Season 3, Episode 4, Aperitivo, written by Nick Antosca, Brian Fuller, and Steve Lightfoot, and directed by Mark Jobst. Jobst? Apologies. Uh, but before we get into that, a couple of housekeeping things up at the top. If you'd like to get in contact with us, uh, you can do so in one of a few ways. You can hit us up on Twitter. Both Kate and I are on there, as is Molly. Uh, you can email us at thisisourdesign666 at gmail.com. You can leave a comment on the post for this when it goes up at soundonsite.org, or you can leave a rating at iTunes. We would appreciate that. We love the feedback. Uh, I also occasionally check the IMDb boards and the Reddit for Hannibal, but those are not official ways. I'm just lurking in there, <laughs> as one does. Um, so with that, we'll do a little bit of table setting up at the top as well. Uh, here are your Hannibal by the numbers for Aperitivo. The episode features 11 speaking roles, the top three, and, and this is interesting, I think. Um, characters who get the most lines are Chilton at number one, at 76, Mason at number two, at 63, and Alana at number three at 49. So just one of our uh, featured actors in the credits uh, in one of the top roles. And then there are 26 individual scenes, the longest of which is just a little over three and a half minutes, the shortest of which is 13 seconds and is the final scene. So some things to consider. But uh, let's, let's talk about this episode, which is uh, interesting structurally in the context of this season. And Molly, this is the episode that a lot of us were probably predicting we would get in the premiere, since it's what happened after Mizumono and the fates of all of our characters. So what what was the purpose and maybe what are some of the, the drawbacks and the benefits of doing the opening to the season in this way? Well, I think one of the things that's really interesting about this, right, is that this is like a table setting episode. You assume that you're going to get this much earlier in the season. You assume, I mean, granted, we're only on episode four, but when you're dealing with only a certain amount of episodes, you're it's it feels you know you're already essentially a third of the way through the season at this point so this is like one of those table setting episodes you think you're either going to get in the premiere or in the second episode um i think that really they got to just they had to set up um they kind of had to set up this push and pull between hannibal and will kind of there was so much that happened and there was so much to catch up on just with these two characters i think you know you got to remind i think you're reminding the audience at this point that like okay these other characters are great. You like them a lot, but your central push and pull right here are between these two guys. Um, and, you know, here are the similarities between them. Here are the differences between them. And um, I think one of the drawbacks is that, you know, throughout the first three episodes, I kept sitting there being like, okay, well, who's dead? <laughs> you know, like, who made it out of that, that last massacre and who, who stayed alive? Um, so that's certainly the drawback. But if anything, that's, I mean, it's just a drawback from a fan's perspective rather than a critical perspective. I thought it was pretty bold that they held all of this back. And then when essentially when they wanted to share all of this information, it was in a very 
light episode for both of its main characters, especially its main draw. The reason kind of why the show is so interesting in the first place. Um, so I didn't see that this was a problem. I thought it was pretty interesting and pretty, um, you know, pretty bold for them to do this. The other thing about, um, you know, being a fan of the show and, and wanting to see who survived and who didn't, the, the good thing there in holding off is that it, it makes those things matter less. It makes plot details matter less, and it allows those first three episodes, and this one as well, to focus more on um, some of the psychological things that are going on with the characters at this point, because that's ultimately what's going to matter in the aftermath of Mizunono. It's not necessarily uh, the things that happened, but the ways in which those things have altered the shape of this cast. Well, and I think it's also important to consider, and yes, we're just looking at the text. We're just looking at the show. But anybody who's, you know, following Brian Fuller on Twitter or even just vaguely interested in stuff, watching any trailer for this season, already knew, you know, who was alive. Jack was going to be back. And uh, I mean, at, at Comic-Con last year, they made a big deal of announcing Chilton would be back. And Alana, you know, is, you know, all these characters show up in the, the early trailers. So the show was clearly not concerned with that being a spoiler or that being um, a big reveal. And they have a little fun with Abigail in, in um, Primavera of, as to whether she's there or not. But in general, the show, again, like you were saying, Sean, the show doesn't care so much about that plot element. They are much more concerned with the psychology of Hannibal and the psychology of Will. And so to have the season start with this trio, a very dreamlike, very um, artistic and uh, um, sort of contemplative episodes, you know, all all this water imagery, all this really artistic flair and, um, you know, much, you know, there is some plot, but much less plot, really highlights their priorities and let's you spend the time that you need to, to take a close look at where Hannibal is at and where Will is at. And then we get to this episode and we get to just have sort of a, just a plot dump with all of these characters. And now it seems like who knows what they'll do next, but it feels like we're heading into a much more plot driven chunk of the season. Let's talk a little bit about the, the plot dump that you've mentioned, because this is something that happens um, in television and, and, those of us who write about it and have to pay attention to um, the ways in which they're used because exposition, just lots of it, isn't necessarily a useful thing. But there are cases, um, obviously, where it's necessary and can be pulled off well. So uh, considering how much needed to be addressed after Mizumono with all these characters, and before that episode, actually, because, you know, Chilton and Mason, that, that happened earlier than that episode. They weren't part of the the red dinner, um, but is this is this a good use of it, or or does this feel too plot heavy for an episode of Hannibal? No, you know what? I think this has been a um, I think this has been a pretty arty season, and now it's kind of time to now it's kind of time to do some plot. You know what I mean? Now it's kind of time to like I've been I've put up with like a lot of beautiful blood spills and and whatnot. To I, you know I get that that what Brian is trying to do here and making this like piece of television that doesn't look like anything else on television but at the same time you know as a television fan i also need the story to move along and um you know so i kind of appreciated that i kind of appreciated that there was that there was more plot i think it depends on who your characters are going to be who your main characters are and who your supporting characters are so if they wanted to just leave behind baltimore and we just yeah those characters weren't on the show for for 
a season or something, then you could absolutely not have plot and not address any of this stuff and you wouldn't need it. Um, you know, you'd have Jack over in Italy and you'd just stay in Europe and move on from there. And you could, again, continue that approach, like that more arty approach that they've been taking this season. But if you want Alana to be a prominent character in your season, if you're still interested in her and still curious about her, we need to see what she's been dealing with, what she's been going through, and how she has been affected by her experience at the end of last season. If you want Mason Verger to play in, which clearly they do, um, then we need to get a bit of information on what's going on. So, so because they, you know, Brian Fuller and the other people at Hannibal are very committed to um, this this Mason Verger plot line, and that's going to drive some of the action with. Um, I have, I'm not familiar with the books, but I know something about, you know, with this million dollar bounty, which will come into play, um, then we needed to check in on everyone. So while this, you know, for me, I liked all that arty stuff. <laughs> I didn't need this plot at all. Uh, but if that's the kind of story they want to do, then we do need to check in. So I think they, they, they handled all that in an interesting way and they managed to keep it pretty grounded in character while they were doing it. So it didn't feel too expo dumpy. I agree, and I think that uh, this is a successful use of having to to throw on a bunch of plot catch-up. And I'm glad that it's not too much of a problem since it's really easy to get mired in wanting something that you're not getting. So having too much exposition versus having not enough, there's actually been a lot of complaining uh, on the IMDb boards about how already this... Uh, early season has been and that it's gotten away from itself. So I'm not sure if this is going to, to quell that in any way, but um, now it feels like all of the momentum has built up and that from here, we're going to move on into whatever this season wants to really start delving into. Um, and it seems like part of that has to revolve around Frederick Chilton, who makes his return appearance um, and who gets to be the character who interacts with everybody else in the episode. He, like I said up at the top, that he has the most lines out of any character in this episode, um, and he's pushing them in certain directions, trying to get at whatever inner conflict they're dealing with and really capitalize on, on those conflicts, perhaps for his own benefits, um, perhaps for something else. Uh, Kate, could you talk a little bit about Chilton's role in this episode? I saw a few people on Twitter saying, uh, calling him the Nick Fury of this episode, you know, trying to get the Avengers together to go take on Hannibal. <laughs> and I thought that was That's very, great. yeah, it's an apt description. Um, but what I, what I really thought was interesting about Chilton in this episode, I like the way that they, in, in that opening scene with him and Mason, they take off, he takes down, you know, he looks normal so that, that way they don't have to do a bunch of makeup on him every week if they don't want to um but but then they have him take out the the plate you know that's holding his his face up and the the makeup and the contact and everything so that you really do see just how affected he has been you know by being shot in the face i like that there's consequences to that but it also you know the the children we're seeing here is is a different chilton and from what i've heard people say about the books it sounds like this is more like the chilton from silence of the lambs the the book i i don't know like i said i haven't read the books but 
last season he was this really uh fan favorite character he's an audience surrogate it's like what if you knew who hannibal was but you couldn't do anything about it how would you act and how would that make you feel so he got to have all these really great comedic knowing lines that we could really appreciate but he um and be like a lovable coward because like what else would you do come on we're not super people and here after being shot in the face and having his life destroyed by hannibal um being framed he he's so bitter and um very angry and also he really is really looking for some revenge and so to to see him go from that really almost lovable figure in season 2 to he's just being a dick in much of this episode specifically with alana he's just he he loses all of my the sympathy that they gained for him over the course of season 2 in the way that he the harsh uh utterly non-empathetic way he treats Alana. And um, I think that's really an interesting move for the character. And I think it's going to give them a lot more opportunities to play with the dynamics moving forward over the season. And, you know, it's, it's a much more challenging character character to identify with because we absolutely mean like, he's not wrong. We totally get where he's coming from. He's totally justified in how he feels and, and how he's behaving, but he's also, I mean, come on, Alana had her, back broken every bone in her body pretty much broken and you're gonna taunt her about you know it's like i told you neener neener about hannibal i mean come on dude everybody has their different idea of what revenge on hannibal lecter looks like his is certainly different from mason verger's and the two clash uh in the episode opening in which um through their talking and through their supposed therapy Mason thinks that Chilton's not necessarily on board with exactly what Mason wants out of that path. Um, Molly, what's the difference between their motivations in terms of how they wish to, uh, I guess, put themselves completely back together following what Hannibal did to them? Yeah, I mean, that's like the right everybody's you know, Will and Lynn Hannibal are so concerned with forgiveness right now, while everybody else is so concerned with how they're going to get, how they're going to get theirs. You know what I mean? That like, how they're going to get their part of their piece of Hannibal. Um, I think that's really interesting is that you have the two main characters are after one thing and everybody else is after something completely different. So like, that's, you know, he's, he's bringing everyone together, right? I think that what Kate, what you're saying is that he's this really reprehensible character that he's supposed to be this like force of good, but he's a really terrible guy. Um, and I said, that's, that makes him kind of the perfect, the perfect fulcrum. You know, he's essentially by his revenge on Hannibal is essentially getting exactly what he wanted in the first place, which is to have the Chesapeake Ripper be a part of his, um, you know, be a part of his essentially like collection of weirdos. And this is, um, and so he just now has a name to call him opposed to before when he was just kind of the cipher of a Chesapeake Ripper. Um, I like that you brought up that everybody else had their, their kind of their own idea of what revenge was and what it looked like. And right. That was something that, you know, everybody, everybody thinks about, everybody has their own ideas and there's no, there's no real right one. Although it is Chilton who comes up kind of winning in the end. He's the one whose idea of revenge is the one that gets realized. Unless, like, Brian Fuller's, like, really going off the rails and is going to kill off his main character, but I don't think that's going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> Most likely not. Um, yeah, he, he is much more 
blunt and aggressive post being shot in the face. The interaction with Alana, I think, is interesting because the idea of complicity, that he believes that he's just saying the facts. Um, it, it is in a very obnoxious and rude manner, but at the same time, it makes you wonder, given Alana's arc last season, you know, how how much should she be blaming herself for the position that she finds herself in? Uh, that using Chilton to kind of force characters to think about that, and I think that he forces more than just Alana to do that, um, I think makes really good use of him. It's a convenient thread. It's you know he's the guy that can easily go visit everyone because he doesn't have all the baggage with everyone that they have with each other. Alana's not going to go visit Will, and Will's not going to go visit Alana. But this is a way that we can see how they feel about the same situations by using Chilton and having them, you know, happen to end up in the same place. Let's just have an interaction. But otherwise, I mean, we get that conversation briefly with Jack when Jack, you know, Will wasn't going to go see Jack because you know. He, he's not feeling great about you know his some of his decision making in Mizumono, and so he's not the kind of character that's going to make these interactions happen. So I think Chilton functions well in that purpose in in that role. Uh, we were speculating last week with the return of Jack, given that he's lighting a candle there in the church that that had something to do with Bella's death. And sure enough, in this episode, we see Bella Crawford. Uh, have her last breath under very interesting circumstances. Um, but just before going into the details of that, um, Molly, could you talk a little bit about how Bella has kind of helped build uh, some of the ideas that Hannibal tries to convey? What, what has her presence done for this series? Well, I think specifically in this episode, she kind of gives Jack permission to seek revenge, right? She was like, the difference between, I think that quote where she says something like, the difference between you and me is that you can cut out the thing that's killing you. Well, she knows she can't. Um, I thought that was really interesting that, like, um, she's also one of the things that I really thought about and I didn't end up mentioning in my review was, She's the only natural death on the show. I mean, she's like, so far, she's the only, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but she's the only person who's died of natural causes. And, you know, clearly her death her death is kind of cloaked in something else, probably. But, like, for the most part, if Jack hadn't intervened, she would have died of, this is how she would have died. Um, I think also you see, I think, right, she's sitting there and she's, she, you know, and especially in the end when she's kind of bathed in white and she's kind of this, like, angelic figure who, who's not rude, who didn't do anything to deserve what she had or doesn't do anything to deserve her eventual fate. She's the, she's the one who's kind of giving permission, saying, like, okay, this is okay that you do this. Like, you're not going into the ground with me. You have to continue living, and the only way you're going to be able to continue living is by doing what you got to do is by going over and finding him and bringing him back. That's interesting. I had such a different read of that. And I'm curious, um, and maybe I'm not saying I'm right because <laughs> you, we know how we love our ambiguity on Hannibal. I read that as, um, cut, cutting Will out of his life. Cause Will is the person who led him, you know, Lecter and, and Will, if he's, if he's not involved with them, then he can't. He's not going to be in danger. He's not going to be in trouble. So just start over and leave them behind. Um, 
and then we see because we know that Jack is going to go over looking for Will. So yeah, that I had a different read of that, and so this notion—I was thinking of it as he was acting counter to her advice, but maybe maybe you're right, and it's more the other. No, and I totally see. You know, kind of. I told. I no, I 100% see where you're coming from as well. That like, you know, he's all of a sudden right. He isn't going to the ground with her, so why not? Why not do what she's telling him not to do? Um, you know, he's got this. He's got this whole new life. He can start over again. And I mean, they're. I think that they're. That they both. I think they both make total sense based on kind of how you how you read Bella and how you how you saw her going from from beginning to end. That's interesting. Okay. Uh, I think I'm some kind of mixture of these ideas that uh, when she says that he can cut out the thing in his life that's killing him, um, it could be a couple things. I think with Jack, one of the bigger problems that he's had in the series is how stubborn he is when it comes to doing his job because he is very good at it. And so to let that part of his character and personality go to where he doesn't need to keep pursuing this over and over. I think that that, for me, it means not to cut out Will, but to cut out those impulses and then just bring back Will, which might be why he goes after him in Italy. But I don't know. It's, there are a couple things I think that you could define based on what Bella says about cutting that thing out. Cutting out the stubbornness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or yeah. He mean like he is forced into retirement. It's hard to believe that he would have kept on in that role beyond this. Um, and he also in his interaction with Will isn't, you know, angry isn't like, you know, you son of a bitch, you almost got me killed. He's just kind of getting the information to process it. Cause I think that the understanding of, what went down is really important for all of these characters. Um, And then that shows, you know, part of him relinquishing that, that he isn't willing to pursue some of these things in the same way that, you know, the former head of the behavioral unit would have. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But But he's going, he's going going a little rogue. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, Of course, though, there's plenty of stuff here to talk about with Bella. Um, Can we just talk about how gorgeous she is? (laughs) <laughs> she's so pretty <laughs> it's it kind of didn't make my heart sink as soon as i saw her name at the, in the credits because i guess you know we can anticipate this and it's not necessarily well i was going to say it's not necessarily uh the most beautiful of ways to go it could have been worse but at the same time i don't know is this satisfying Let's talk about the actual scene itself, where Jack looks at his schedule of uh, medication, uh, injects her with, I mean, we don't, is it, do we assume that's morphine or something else, uh, and then uh, holds her as she dies. Um, what what was going through your head during that, Kate? Well, it's just a connection to her initial wish to die, and to die peacefully, and to die quietly and to die um, in the way that she chose as compared to struggling for every breath the way that her mother did and we see her doing that we see her struggling for every breath when she's talking to Jack um, as he's recovering I thought that was a lovely scene between the two of them and um, and so to see 
see Jack just like look at that schedule, look at his wife who now like he's come home because that's usually when she's awake and she's not even she doesn't even have that anymore where she's you know awake and able to interact and you know be herself for at least part of the day and so to look at for him to look at the schedule of um the injections that he has for her and to know that it's just going to get worse and more and more and this is what she wanted for me it was a really lovely scene it was because again because it was in concert with her with it with her wishes and it was it showed jack finally being able to let go and to honor her wishes it's followed by a, a couple rather beautiful scenes as well in which um in primavera we got that uh cutting between um doctors working on will's body to try to keep him alive and then prepping Abigail's body in the morgue. Uh, similarly here, we get uh, both characters preparing for the funeral, essentially. Mm -hmm. Bella's being dressed up uh, and, you know, Jack's putting on his his shirt and everything. There, And then, you know, that, that wedding fantasy bit is, is very beautiful. And I guess, yeah, now that I think about it, uh, the handling of it, I mean, aesthetically is fantastic. I... I just wonder about what was it that piece of dialogue that she said about cutting the thing that's killing him out um, or just the things that have happened in general that maybe caused the shift in him to where he realizes that her initial wish is much more important than his selfish desires to, to keep her around mm -hmm. as long as possible. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. I think that's it's a apt reading. <laughs> and then we get um, an interruption uh, in that, that scene when he notices a, an envelope that's been delivered by Hannibal Lecter. Um, and the the music, I'm, I'm sure Kate will talk about later in the podcast and how that changes the tone of that scene. Um, but considering that Bella was always a character that Hannibal respected, I mean, it doesn't seem like that action is meant to goad Jack in any way, but now that she's dead, how has he changed um, in the sense of going forward? Like, what what are his motivations as a character, Kate? I think I think it's to try to preserve what he has, and um, and I th I think he's he seems very focused on on Will and trying to stabilize that relationship i think he still feels very much the guilt of he introduced he literally introduced will to hannibal and started all of this in season one and so i think he feels very responsible to will as well as just will has been you've seen has been a wonderful friend to jack which is part of what makes that you know that fantasy of jack, will helping hannibal kill jack so you know creepy um and, and so i think that is the main tie like that's his unfinished business Right now, it's not. He doesn't have work. He's he's let go of Bella, um, and so if he can try to fix this this problem he created for for Will, um, I think that's that feels like that's his driving purpose. Um, I'm curious what you guys thought of that because I I got very angry <laughs> at my TV when that happened, and I had like have an all caps in my notes. Rude Hannibal. Like I think, <laughs> I, I believe Hannibal's absolutely. Uh, sincere and it does offer an interesting olive branch between the two of them now that 
if Jack has let go of this part of himself that needs to catch Hannibal, then are they maybe they're good now? Because I don't think Jack, I don't think Hannibal would have killed Jack if Jack wasn't going to like have to bring him in because that's who he is. Um, so maybe it, that offers an olive branch. I got a little more okay with it when I read the poem that that he was quoting, which is Don Don's a fever, which is absolutely gorgeous. Um, but I was still, I was like shaking with anger on Jack's behalf. <laughs> like, no, you didn't bring send flowers to my wife's funeral. <laughs> no, I think that right. Like, I totally agree. I mean, that's that's ballsy. The reason that you have this giant that you almost died is, um, you know, is he's the reason that you almost died and he's coming into this and he knows all about it, right? They've kind of put both of their cards on the table. They know exactly what's going to happen and like you can't, you know, you're not allowed to come do this. You're not allowed to come into this space and and mourn this, um, especially when he's at this like incredibly vulnerable. He's like in this very vulnerable position. Jack's, um, in speaking about, you know, Alana's complicity and how she might have gotten herself into the situation, I think Jack is another character that's worth examining in that way. And like you said, Kate, uh, he was responsible for introducing Will and Hannibal in the first place which makes that interaction between Jack and Will as Will's working on his boat motor um, really interesting in many ways because Jack doesn't really have uh, a very powerful reaction to hearing Will say that, you know, he, he let Hannibal know that they were coming because he was my friend and because I wanted to run away with him. Um, to me, though, that, that piece of dialogue is much more fascinating when we consider how much of season two was trying to figure out where Will stood, you know, it, he was playing the long game, you know, being the dangling bait for Hannibal. But at the same time, we recognize Hannibal's influence on everybody in his life. You know, he has sway over Bedelia to some extent, still uh, over pretty much every character that he wishes to manipulate. And this is Will admitting that he, he really did give to him, uh, on a core level. Uh, and I was wondering, Molly, if you could talk a little bit about that, hearing Will say that out loud and, you know, if, if we really do believe it and if so, what does that say about Will's character at this point? Well, I think it's really interesting is that, and I, I kind of talk about this a lot in my review is that you only see half of Will's face for most of it, just like you only have to see half of Hannibal's face. Um, and that can say that there's kind of two sides to the, one coin, but, you know, there's still opposite sides of that coin um, that, you know, he could say it all right. And, you know, we spent so much of last season deciding whether he actually meant it or not. And, you know, part of me is thinking, like, is he hiding or are we not as, um, you know, kind of omniscient as an audience as we think we are that, um, you know, he's still playing the he's still playing this act and it's all kind of to it's all kind of to come, you know, to come to this eventual head or have we, were we played all last, were we kind of played all last, all last season thinking that, okay, no, he's this inherently good guy. Um, but yeah, no, I, I, I think it was, I thought it was interesting that, you know, we see them, we see them to the, the one scene we, we've seen them together for the most amount of time is in this kind of fantasy scene, um, this very operatic fantasy scene. And then it becomes, um, you know, it, it, but like we're only kind of seeing one half of Will. We're not getting the full picture. We're only getting to see what the other characters see. So we're once again kind of put on their level and having that, having that om omniscience as a as an audience taken away from us. 
So like what is what is not being revealed mm-hmm. because we're not seeing it all. Right. Kate, Kate, do you think that we're supposed to be thinking about that? Our omniscience as the viewers still, or are we supposed to acknowledge that this is how Will really feels at this point? I think this is absolutely how he really feels at this point, um, which doesn't mean that we're not not getting the whole picture because we'll not, might not be getting the whole picture yet. You know, he's still got some things to work out. He doesn't like as, as we already know. He ends Primavera by forgiving Hannibal, but he doesn't know that he's going to do that until the instant it happens. You know, it does that doesn't feel premeditated at all. He's not sure what he's going to say to Hannibal, and then it just sort of comes out in Primavera. So. Um, I think he doesn't, in this scene, he doesn't necessarily know fully what he feels, but I, I love the honesty of that line. And I love the performance from Dancy in that moment. I love, uh, Jack being sort of, um, unless I'm misremembering it, I think he's sort of out of focus in the background because we're focused on Will. And that is, that is paralleled later when we have Jack in the foreground and Will out of focus behind him in the church. But I, I love that there is no BS between Jack and Will. I love that Will's just pulling it out there. It's like, this is not what you want to hear, Jack, at all. But I'm going to be completely up, up front with you. And um, that's just, I, I always appreciate when shows, you know, skip through the, the five episodes of people pretending to really think a different thing before they actually tell each other how they feel. Um, so, so I really appreciate that. And then when you add the context of, when you're watching it at first, it just seems like, oh, he's fixing boat engine. That's like a thing that he does that they've talked about on the show before. When you have the context of the end of the episode, he's fixing that boat engine, not just cause, but because at least part of him, at least some subconscious part of him, if not actively, like he's already decided some part of him wants to go in his boat after Hannibal already. He's already planning to leave, but before he can leave, he's got to fix his boat. And so having, that conversation with Jack about how he felt directly after he's, you know, imagining what he would have had to sacrifice, which is basically Jack in order to have done that in the first place. It's, it's very, it's very powerful. And um, again, like I said, I'm just grateful. We're not having another season of will keeps all his feelings inside. And we have to wonder. I am as well. And yeah, there's no BS between, Will and Jack, there's no BS between Will and Alana either. The the scene in which they're both in Lecter's kitchen uh, and Will just says that he wanted to be alone and if you wouldn't mind, like that's really important for me as a viewer, especially after having just recently rewatched season two and being so frustrated with how nobody was really buying into what Will was selling other than Beverly who got killed because of it. Uh, until the end. And, you know, by that time, it's a little bit too late. And Alana was definitely a a big, big part of that, who was just so convinced of this thing that wasn't necessarily true. Um, That relationship is severely damaged, I think. And it's important for Will to say something like that to her. Although I, I guess she is watching his dogs by his request. I don't think that he would have just like left them alone. Right. <laughs> so glad to see the dogs. Right. It's been a while. We haven't seen them in a while. Yeah. Yeah. But um, can you talk about that relationship Molly, between Will and Alana and how, I guess 
the honesty of that similar to, to Will and Jax has put on display here and how that's also changed. Yeah, I think that's um, the, right. Like this, it was always such a weird relationship because you never knew whether it was platonic or, you know, it went, it kind of wavered from platonic to having, you know, romantic overtones to undertones. And um, I think here at this point, you know, they both have, they both know where where each other stands and they both trust each other in a way because they you know they've both gone through she wouldn't be in the situation without him but at the same time now she knows kind of where he is or she at least thinks like kind of where she is and where he is and they've they're kind of on that the, the same plane before when um you know last season they spent the entire time missing each other kind of not believing each other not understanding where each other stood but now it's it's pretty much right out there. Um, I think that she sees, she sees, you know, she's looking for revenge and she sees him as bait. She's just figured out that like, all right, if it means before she spent so much time protecting him and why protect him when she can just use him to get exactly what she wants. She's not uh, opposed to old Testament revenge. She says that she appreciates that, uh, which is a very different Alana Bloom than what we've seen in the past, Kate. Oh Yeah would have to be it can't you know you can't have that experience of going all in with i'm going to trust hannibal and then having that so completely unravel like all of her choices and her this identity she's given to herself and also to hannibal and this notion of human nature and what is possible have that all unraveled you, you can't be the same person afterwards and so i like this this new sassy alana <laughs> uh, as i wrote in, in some of my notes but i think when you're talking about will and alana it's important also to contrast them the scene we get with them with the scene we get with Chilton and Alana because Chilton's you know also said the same stuff as well to Alana at least to some extent and um he's bitter and bitchy about it and will completely I mean he their relationship is in a very difficult place and who knows if it'll ever repair but I don't think he blames Alana because he understands I mean she, he's like well yeah okay she should have believed me and she should have listened to me. And I tried to tell her, but really Hannibal, you know, is he really, you know, at a certain point, Hannibal's the Trump card and you can't really, he doesn't, it doesn't seem like he holds it against her. He's not bitter or angry towards her. He just doesn't want to hang out with her right now. Um, which I think the, the, the line that they tread with that in that scene, um, especially with, with how Will is towards Alana, Alana has, you know, very, I think, different relation, uh, different thoughts about where she and Will are at maybe than he does. But um, I thought they did a really good job of, of walking that line. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Um, the other and final character that we kind of get a, a massive catch up on with is Mason Verger and Margot Verger to some extent. Um, who, there, you know, it's funny to call it like a nice catch up with. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um, who has a very different, design, of course, and uh, a very different face, because this is obviously a new actor. Michael Pitt was recast, of course. Um, and I guess we could just talk a little bit about Joe Anderson's performance as this new and more disfigured Mason Verger, if you want to kick that off, Molly. I think that one of the things that you could refer, I mean, like, the voice is, the voice is pretty similar. It's still that kind of, like, old-timey, that very strange old-timey diction that, that Michael Pitt took on. Um, 
but you know, so I think he's, I think he's great. He's still kind of like super camp, and that's always what I liked about Mason. He was like, he was for as terrible as he was, he was pretty campy. And you know, Michael Pitt was never afraid to choose, choose scenery. And despite the fact that his character does not have any lips, it seems as if you know Joe Anderson's <laughs> going to be going to be very willing to eat some scenery as well. But um, which is always fun, you know, especially when a show. One of the things that the show is so good at is when it gets so dark and so glowery that one of the great things about it is that. It allows you to, you know, every once in a while it'll break. It'll break and have these very funny moments. You know, last season, or last episode had some pretty hilarious, these like great, like, oh, you know, just technically you killed him and, and things like that. Um, what was really interesting about this episode was that, you know, so, so it was really good to have that kind of like, that's still kind of comic relief, even if it comes in the form of a villain. You know, like if I had, you know, if I had lips, I would smile kind of deal. Um, so I thought he did a, I think he did a really good job. Although his hairline is completely different <laughs> and because that's the only thing you see, I kept focusing on his hairline, and I was like, "Oh, this is so different." It was, it was, it was oddly distracting. His hairline is completely different than Michael Pitts, and it was one of the things. It was like one of the things that I focused on. Where I was like, "Oh, this guy's doing a great job," but all I can think about is his hair. <laughs> that's funny. The voice was distracting for me, especially in the first scene, because. For me, it felt because Michael Pitt did such a specific thing. It's so heightened and over the top. Um, I mean, he was having a lot of fun with it. That when in this first scene, it really felt like Anderson was like imitating that. It didn't feel like he was. It was his take on Verger. Um, it felt like he was trying to be Michael Pitt's take, and that just that way lies doom. Just that's not going to go well because it's just such a specific and heightened and. Like that voice is ridiculous that Michael Pitt is doing all through the season, um, and so to try to to be Michael Pitt's voice or to, to adopt Michael Pitt's voice, I think was it was very distracting for me because it just was it was enough off. It was like Uncanny Valley off, you know, where it just it was distracting. But over the course of the episode, and even over the course of that scene, like when he takes the mask off, um, it felt like. And, I, and maybe this was an intentional choice where it's like he's trying to pretend like he's season two, um, Mason Verger, and then he takes the mask off and he just is like, no, this is what it's, this is who I am now. It's like we're seeing the, how he's been changed by his experience. Maybe that was an intentional choice, but if so, it was still distracting for me. Um, but over the course of the episode, I think he does more and he makes the character more his own, and I think that's a much better choice um, than trying to mimic such a heightened and stylized performance. I mean, Sean, where, so it sounds like I'm you know, more on the fence maybe than, than Molly is. Uh, where, where are you with, with this new take? Uh, I could definitely see some of that imitation. Uh, but then of course, imitation is brought up in this episode in terms of how it applies to characters in Hannibal, which makes that rather interesting. But uh, yeah, I thought Anderson was, was fine in this role. I especially appreciate that uh, Mason got such a big part to play. Uh, like I said earlier, that he was the, the character with the second most lines in the entire episode. And he only appeared in three episodes last season. Uh, but I guess Pitt's performance really brought a weight to it that made it so memorable. And so to to draw on that and to build on that, I'm glad that he's been reintroduced early into the season and that he has things to do. And it's not just his interactions with the various characters who we know already. And I think that Anderson plays well especially with, with Raul Esparza in their scene, but um, that, you know, we, we meet his, his 
physical therapist and we assume other things as well, uh, Cordell, uh, and just that they're allowing the vergers to have their own stories too. I think that, that that's important. Um, but yeah, that will move us right along into our recurring segments for the podcast. And we'll, of course, begin with Kate's classical corner. So, Kate, what can you tell us about the soundtrack, the score in Aperitivo? Well, the first, uh, the first, the, the the classical piece featured in this week's episode is um, the from the Pierre Gint Suite by by Grieg. It's um, I don't know how to say it. It's, it's an A with a little circle on the top. Asa, maybe Asa's death or the death of Asa. Um, and Pierre Gint is, of course, based its music um, to go with or based on the the play, um, right or book of of uh, by by Ibsen, the play, yeah, by by Ibsen. Play. And yeah, and Pierre Gint is that's. It's about a protagonist, Pierre Gint, who is many things, and uh, but it's, it's a lot about the pursuit of um, being to that to thine own self be true. That, that that idea of you know he spends the 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 play trying to um, find like do whatever feel you know to be him, be true to himself, and gets to the end and realizes like who even is he, and um, has he wasted his life or has he been in trying to be true to himself has he wasted his life or has he actually what is he to be true to it's this whole i'm not familiar with the play but that's what wikipedia tells me the play is about are you guys familiar with the play yeah you you did pretty good (laughs) good awesome tip of the head to me then um but asa is is the character's mother and um while he's you know going out and being true to himself or whatever uh she he near he he makes it back in time to to be with her when she dies and so with this episode having this thread of you know and the season really or the show having this thread of of will not knowing you know choosing between jack and and hannibal and the part of him that would have liked to have gone with hannibal struggling with the part of him that couldn't accept killing jack and um, what is he going to do next? And what is he going to do when he finds Hannibal? He just really doesn't know himself. Doesn't really know how he feels about this stuff. So um, scoring that scene where it's the the death of the father figure, you could say Jack, um, in this in the pursuit of trying to be true to this version of himself, I thought that was a really neat tie. I don't know if it's intentional. Uh, all I know is that it's gorgeous, gorgeous piece of music. It's a, such a full orchestral sound. There have been very few excerpts like this, uh, classical pieces, in the in the run of the series. One of the ones that comes to mind, of course, is the Mahler Adagietto, which we get we got um, when uh, Hannibal and Will were eating um, their long pig uh, together. But but having such a thick and lush orchestral sound featured this prominently is a rare thing for Hannibal, and it's very powerful and absolutely gorgeous. So I loved that choice by Reitzel um, as a music supervisor to use that that particular piece. Um, that's the only specific classical piece I have, um, but there are a bunch of really interesting things with the scoring. Uh, we have, there's clarinet and bassoon is all over this. It's really interesting. I always connect with clarinet to um, the, the scene of Chilton coming to his home and finding it, you know, it basically... You know, he finds Abel Gideon and downstairs like that. That whole scene is 
prominently scored with clarinet. So that's what I always think of. So for me, the clarinet was kind of the through line with Chilton through the episode. Um, it's not only in scenes with him, but that's sort of where I, what I connected to it. There's a lot of um, scoring that mimics what we're seeing on screen. So when we have like the, the Alana falling down and we see her skeleton and there's all the glass, we have a really tinkling sound as well as the bassoon and clarinet going in with that. Um, we have, uh, if, like you said, Sean at the church there's this again a really lovely orchestral sound string sound but we also get the the organ for the funeral uh, so like at the and especially the organ picks up even more at uh at the end of that scene theory tying into the church of course but also tying in very much with the the organ the prominence of the organ in the scoring for the first three episodes the organ being tied to to Italy and this uh the sound that, that we have over um, this notion of Italy as a, as the church and the Norman chapel and all of that. So that was an interesting connection there. We get um, the Will's happy place theme as, after he asks Alana to leave and looks over to Abigail. We get a little portion of the Will's happy place theme um, there in the piano. There's also some the the, the Eastern influence scoring for Mason that we got when he was tripping balls basically back last season comes back for the Mason scenes this week there's also a really prominent harp which I thought was interesting considering the use of the harp with Abel Gideon in episode one and then with Will in episode two of this season and then um the we get a return of the very percussive scoring for Margot and and also later for, for Jack um when we have the water like the wood percussion sounding like water droplets as the blood goes up and we're you know it's sort of in Jack's head and then the last one I have to mention is uh the when we zoom in on Alana and she's talking about justice like old school old testament justice and it's total badass shot like her hair is kind of curled and she's wearing that fabulous red coat that makes her look kind of um femme fatale and like especially with the hair is very femme fatale but but that zoom in and that score is good the bad and the ugly the blah 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 in the scoring it's total <laughs> badass woman with no name she's gonna get hers and i look forward to seeing alana the the, the revenge seeking cowgirl this season that that close-up was a lot of fun uh when they do things like that it seems pretty self-aware and it, it works out generally yeah like when the organs that you talked about when jack picks up the envelope from hannibal it's it's so like overtly oh shit the villain has entered the room in some form it's fantastic um but uh, we'll go ahead and move on to uh, the, our next recurring segment the devil in the details where we talk about little things in the episode that stood out for uh whatever reason the first thing i wanted to say was there's a lot of echoing from previous episodes in this, uh, the, the you show me yours and I'll show you mine between Chilton and uh, Mason echoing when Margot visited Will and they showed each other their scars uh, towards the end of last season. Uh, that's my my first piece. Uh, Molly, anything that stood out to you? Oh, I didn't, I forgot about that. That's a good one. <laughs> um you know, no, I thought this was, uh, you know, I thought this was a pretty good, straightforward episode. I did think that the, um, the way I thought this was the first time, this was the first time for the director, Mark Jobson. He's done a lot of TV and nothing, and from what I had seen of his, you know, kind of his CV, there wasn't a ton to, you know, I granted I'd seen most of his like, uh, 
Mr. Upstairs Downstairs type of type of work, but he did a really good job with this episode. I thought this was like a very on point kind of on brand visually episode for a first time director. Um, I've got uh, I've got a, a couple, not as many as as usual, but um, I there's two things with Jack that I absolutely love, and one of them um, it's a pet peeve of mine in television, so I just was I had to pause and just like geek out and be very happy for a moment and then hit play again. I know what you're going to say. You know what I'm going to say? The the glass, right? In the yeah. neck? Yeah. <laughs> the line about you don't, the reason he survived is because he didn't pull the glass out. Cause that, and that, and also it's a specific callback if you want to note it um, in to when the uh, Mason Verger's men came to take Hannibal and he stabs the guy in the, in the thigh and the the guy pulls the pen out, and so then he bleeds out in a matter of moments because uh, he had been stabbed in the femoral artery. And if he had left the pen in, he probably would have lived. So I love, love, love that. Uh, and then also, of course, of course, Jack Crawford leaves the church by pushing open both doors. He goes through <laughs> the middle of both doors because that's the kind of guy that he is. And I've got a, I've got one or two more, but uh, but do you have some more, Sean? Um, just a couple of little ones. Uh, you already mentioned when Will turns and sees Abigail. I like that we get that whole Will visualizing an Abigail who's not there in this episode as well. That, that wasn't just a part of Primavera. But um, Margot and Alana's heavy flirtation. Yes, yes, that was happening. You are not the only one to think so. I didn't really see it, but a lot of but Twitter disagrees. <laughs> yeah, but Twitter likes to see that stuff when I don't think it's there a lot of the time. I mean, yeah, it could just be there are ways to like read into dialogue in that way regardless, but the lines are, uh, this can be your entrance. It isn't easy to find the first time you come. And <laughs> True. Fuller's very meticulous with his script, so I I don't know. Maybe it's the the context of the Supreme Court decision that is putting that in the conscious mind, but uh, it it felt like there was some flirtation there. Well, they like to be playful with that stuff, and hey, I'm sure there's a very happy portion of the the fan base or the audience base who are just squeeing and starting up their typewriters to, to write a bunch of, of, uh, of fanfic. And I'm sure a lot of it is going to be a lot of fun. So <laughs> absolutely. You, you know, you, you do you audience, you know, absolutely. I look forward to seeing some, uh, some, I hope to see some Hannibal costumes at Comic-Con this year. There's some, I mean, I want to see somebody in that amazing coat uh, and eat that black outfit we get from her later. Alana later is also, I mean, because this is someone who she's like almost exclusively dressed in, dressed in wrap dresses in those first two seasons. Every now and again, it's like a, a nice blouse and a skirt, but to see her in this costuming is so distinct. And, um, and so, yeah, that scene with her, and it's already such a striking scene and with her and, and Margot and, um, this is such a different, her Alana. makeup too. Yeah, her makeup absolutely. Too. She was usually like very plainly done before. And now all of a sudden she's wearing this like very severe red lipstick and, you know, she's wearing foundation, which she, you know, like a very obvious foundation, which she hadn't before. She's like, they've made her up in a way yeah. that, that is very different from how she looked in previous seasons. Well, and it's more like Margot was looking. It's yeah, like, exactly. Definitely. Yeah. That's a sort of, um, really like the, the siren, like for me, it's a very kind of like maybe forties, uh, 
screen siren kind of look like the bold lip and the stylish you know the kind of slightly curled hair and like you can see her rocking one of bedelia's hats with you know <laughs> you can totally see it the other the last one i have uh, for devil in the details is um actually it has to do with that same scene margot's hair um she's she's in pigtails they're mm-hmm. braids but pigtails and so i thought that was a really very stark contrast to her with her styling for last season and she did this really dominant role she had especially the end of the season that was implied with her brother now mason's back and in charge again um and i don't get the sense that he's terrorizing margo like he was before or he's in a position to do that or is interested in doing that but it's interesting that she's such a tangential uh figure in this episode um and she does not seem to be calling the shots with mason like we might have thought she would be based on the last time we saw her in season two and so she's her hair is more um infantilized and still looking fabulous but still but infantilized a little bit could that also tie into the the verger family business Oh, pigtails. Yeah, I don't know if they did that on purpose, <laughs> but I guess just think about that now, it makes sense. That's kind of funny. Um, great. But yeah, that's definitely the details. Anything that we haven't mentioned yet that anybody wanted to talk about in relation to this episode? Molly, anything for you? Nope, I think we're all, I'm thinking we're good. I think we're good. <laughs> all right. Well, then that will conclude the discussion uh, for this week. Once again, thank you, Molly, for coming on and talking with us. Is there anything? Thank that you for you- having me. Yeah, absolutely. Is there anything that you wanted to to plug online? Any uh, goings on on the internet? Any articles? Um, no, you can always find me on Twitter at, at Molly Eichel, and um, you can also find my work at Philly dot com. And, and as always, thank you, Kate. Is anything going on with you? Oh, always. Nothing, you know, we need to talk about here other than check out the podcast, the Televerse podcast, which is my weekly TV podcast over at Sound On Site covering, you know, the rest of TV. Um, and I'm on Twitter at the Televerse and I love talking with y'all. So drop me a line there. Yeah. And you can find me on Twitter as well at Sean Coletti. And you can read my weekly reviews of Hannibal over at TVOvermind.com. And once again, if you'd like to get in contact with us, please do. We love talking with you, responding to things, whatever those things might be. Uh, you can find us again on Twitter at uh, our email address. This is our design 666 at gmail.com or just post stuff over at sound on site. Um, but that's it for this week. Kate and I will be back again next week to talk about season three, episode five contorno uh, until then. Thank you once again. This has been, this is our design. <laughs>